You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. If you could open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Hebrews, and we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to this difficult subject matter, very important subject matter, but difficult subject matter today, we ask in Jesus' name uh, for grace upon the speaker, grace upon those who listen. Uh, We recognize that a sin is um, a massive barrier that we encounter not only every day, but every Sunday when we gather. It's hard for us to receive truth because sin resists it and puts up obstacles. And so we ask, Father, that you will overcome the obstacles today uh, that you will do that special work that only you can do, where you will, you will be able to take truth and, and somehow take it right into the very heart, the depths of our hearts, and bring freedom. And I ask in Jesus' name that you will bring freedom to some today, not only freedom to believers, this is what we pray especially for, but we pray for even freedom for those who have never known you, that you will a grant new life to them this very day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What does it mean to care for another Christian? And who is responsible to care for the believers in a church? This is an interesting question because most Christians typically answer uh, this in a, in a very limited way, uh, either from human sentiment or church tradition or popular cultural depictions of what church is like more than what the Bible teaches. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at a very specific example of how we care for other believers and, and this particular example is going to challenge many of our assumptions about, about, about what care for others in the church looks like. Our text today is Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. And I'll start reading at verse 7 and we'll end at verse 14. Follow along on the PowerPoint as I read. Therefore... As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and and said, they are always going astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, 
lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Our text today, particularly from verse 12, tells us that hardness of heart is very serious because it leads to someone falling away from the living God. The word for that is apostasy. Apostasy just means abandoning the faith that you once believed. Apostasy is described in several places in Scripture. In fact, it's a, it's a theme of the book of Hebrews. But I, I, I like the way 2 Peter describes it. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome... They are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. One very well-known Bible scholar summarizes apostasy in simple terms. It is far more serious to commit apostasy after professing belief than to never have come to faith. Most of you probably know somebody who has committed apostasy. Some are your children, your parents, your brothers, your sisters, your friends. They have turned their back on the faith and no longer follow Christ. And the scriptures tell us that it would have been better for them to have not known the way of righteousness. In other words, unbelievable as it may sound, it would have been better for them to have never heard about Christ than to turn away from Christ. At the great throne of judgment, it will be far worse to face God as an apostate than someone who has never believed in Christ. I tell you this because we need to be reminded how serious it is when a professing believer starts to harden their heart. Today I want to expand our view of what care in the church looks like by examining this text, which shows us how to care for people whose hearts are hardening. Professing believers whose hearts are hardening and are on a trajectory towards apostasy if something doesn't stop them. So therefore, our our redefinition or our expansion, if you will, of the definition of care in this text looks like this. The definition of care, an urgent appeal 
to a professing Christian who is becoming hardened. An urgent appeal to a professing Christian. We say professing because we do not know if they are a believer or not a believer. The way they respond to the appeal will show whether they are, have true faith or not. An urgent appeal to a professing Christian who is becoming hardened. So today we just want to look at two points, the danger of hardness of heart and more importantly, the deliverance from hardness of heart. So let's begin by looking at what the text says about the danger of hardness of heart. Uh, one of the things that I love about Scripture, and this is a, a great example in the text we're looking at, is it gives us a clear directions in how we actually go about and do this. In fact, it shows us how to use Scripture to try to retrieve someone who is on the road to falling away from the living God. Now, if you look at your text, verses 7 to 11 are actually a quote from the Old Testament book of Psalms. This section is lifted right out of the last part of Psalm 95, and it's describing, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, it's describing this generation that was rescued by Moses from Egypt, wandered in the desert, but was ultimately denied entry into the promised land. Now think about this. When Psalm 95, which Hebrews 3 is quoting, when Psalm 95 was written, it was written at least 500 years after all those events took place with Moses. In fact, the people had been in the land for, for, for hundreds of years by the time they read Psalm 95. So when it talks about in verse 11, they shall not enter my rest, the original rest was getting into the promised land. But not enter my rest would make no sense to the Psalm 95 crowd because they were already in the land. Nor would it make sense to Hebrews, the people that were reading the Hebrews in the, in the New Testament, nor does it make sense to us today to, to associate they shall not enter my rest with the land. Well, what then is it referring to? What is, what is being talked about? How is hardness of heart somehow related to not entering rest? What are we, what are we dealing with here? Listen to the scriptures to understand. The book of Hebrews itself gives us the answer in Hebrews 11. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The rest spoken of here in Hebrews is not of this world. It's, it's the final rest in the city of God. It's the new heavens and the new earth. It's our final destiny that is promised to us as believers. So not entering God's rest is another way of saying not entering heaven and all that God has prepared for those who love him. That is why in verse 11, 
This not entering God's rest is associated with God's wrath. Do you see that in verse 11? And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is serious stuff we're talking about. What's at stake here is, is heaven and hell. Where will people find themselves in the end? What makes the difference? And we find that it centers all around belief and unbelief. Look with me at verse 12. Do you see how unbelief is described in verse 12? Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Unbelief is evil. Another way to translate this is a heart that is evil because it is unbelieving. I wonder, how is your soul today? What about you? Are you believing today in Christ or are you unbelieving? Are you more like the people described in, in verse 10, always going astray in your heart, someone who does not know God's ways? What, what are you staking your life upon today, this very morning? When it talks about the wrath of God in verse 11, and I swore in my wrath, when the, when the Bible talks about the wrath of God, it often is, not always, but it often is a short-form way of describing eternal punishment. For example, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, just, he just described all kinds of sinful, hard-hearted behaviors and thoughts and actions. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And then describing salvation in 1 Thessalonians, it says, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know, sometimes you don't hear this as much in this generation, but in a prior generation, you would sometimes hear and have a, a person who's a Christian described as being saved. They were saved. I was saved when I was 14. Well, well saved from what? Saved from the wrath of God and the punishment for their sins. I'll tell you something that's interesting as I, as I look at our present culture and present generation. You know, this, our present online culture that shames people publicly when they are deemed to break culturally appropriate or politically correct laws or, or the cancel culture that punishes people who don't conform to others' standards. Uh, this, this shaming culture, this cancel culture is, if you think about it, a tacit recognition that wrongdoing should be punished. They, they punish because society believes justice requires punishment for wrongs. And on that level, 
uh, our generation gets that right. But they forget that they are not the judge, but the judged. There is only one lawgiver and judge, Scripture says, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So what is the danger of hardness of heart? It is that it provokes God's wrath. And if not repented of, will lead to apostasy and God's judgment. It is very serious. It is a, it is a matter of life and death of heaven and hell. Now look with me again at verse 7 and 8. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What this tells us, my friends, is that what is happening right now, as I speak to you, could be leading to hardness of heart. Whenever scripture is opened and we are hearing God's voice, we are in danger of hardening our heart. Whenever we choose not to listen to the word, we are hardening our heart. Our hearts are always either getting softer or harder. Think of a lump of clay and a lump of wax out in the hot summer sun. One is softening, one is hardening under the same sun. How is your heart responding to what I've been saying so far? Are you resisting these words, throwing up objections, making excuses, maybe already ignoring it altogether as you drift in thought? Or are you reaching out in faith, grasping these, without a doubt, hard truths, but grasping them with faith? You see, coming to church on Sunday is a dangerous thing. If you are not actively responding to the word week by week as it is opened and preached, if you're not actively believing and acting on it, which would be like a ball of wax in the sun becoming softer and more pliable in God's hand, then if you are not doing that, then you are doing the opposite. You are growing harder and you are moving away from the Lord. And the more exposure you have to the word of God, the more dangerous it becomes for you because your heart is becoming hard, like a lump of clay in the hot sun. So what can be done to, to reverse the effects of hardness in our hearts? Friends, do we not all admit that all of us have a tendency towards hardness of heart? That where we naturally are like the, the, the coal that, that slowly cools. It doesn't get hotter and hotter without more fuel being added. It gets colder and colder. This is the tendency of our hearts is to calcify and harden. And therefore we have to say, well, what can be done for my soul and for others around us? So this brings us then to the deliverance. This is the main thing, the deliverance from hardness of heart. 
Before we can effectively rescue each other from the damaging effects of hardness of heart, we have to understand how hardness in the heart begins and how it progresses in its deadly work. So let's look very carefully at verses 12 and 13 because in verses 12 and 13 is mapped out the roadway, the dangerous roadway towards apostasy. This pathway is discovered by examining the the cause and effect relationships that are detailed in these two verses. In fact, what we find in verses 12 and 13 are, are four cause and effect relationships. I wonder if you can see them there. We could diagram these, these four cause and effect relationships like dominoes. The first domino hits the second, hits the third, hits the fourth. They are related. So let's start with the fourth domino first and work our way back to the first one. Domino number four in verse 12 is falling away from the living God. That's at the end there. That is apostasy. That is rejecting the faith that we once believed. What makes that happen according to verse 12? Well, that's domino number three. It's an evil, unbelieving heart. Unbelief always comes before apostasy. The inability to acknowledge and recognize truth. Now, that's obvious. It doesn't take any kind of rocket science to figure that out. But here's where it gets interesting. What is behind the unbelief? We find that in verse 13. It says that none of you, at the end of verse 13, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What we see there is that hardness comes before unbelief. So unbelief, listen to this, unbelief doesn't produce hardness. Hardness produces unbelief. And then we come to domino number one, the one that makes it all happen. The first cause of the domino effect, which ultimately leads to apostasy. Do you see it there in verse 13? What is it that causes the hardness? It's the deceitfulness of sin, the deceitfulness of sin. Sin first deceives, then it hardens. The mind is captured first by lies, and then the emotions are dulled and become insensitive to sin. Now, this next part of the message is probably the most important part. Look at this sequence very carefully. Let's go back to domino number three, which is unbelief. What is unbelief? Unbelief is not believing what is true, right? That's the way the Bible describes unbelief. Unbelief is not believing what is true. Now look at domino number one. Deceit. Well, what is deceit? Deceit is believing what is not true. Believing what is not true. 
Unbelief and deceit both have to do with belief. One has to do with not believing the truth. The other one has believing what is not true. If I come to believe a lie, I will not be able to believe the truth that counters it. If I believe that not A is true, I cannot believe that A is true. They can't both be true. If I believe that one plus one is two, I cannot believe one plus one is three. You see, this is the key insight, I think, from this text that helps us to understand how to help people. Behind all unbelief is belief. Behind all unbelief is belief. Believing lies is behind not believing the truth. This insight gives us incredibly valuable clues on how the deceitful pathway is undone. When when people are hardening their hearts, they're hardening their hearts because they're believing lies somewhere. And we have to find out what those lies are and unravel those lies if we're ever going to get them so that their unbelief is taken care of. This is where we get to the very heart of the matter. Now, look with me at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. In this verse, we find something that challenges the very nature of the way people look at church life. This is, this is one of those verses, by the way, that, that many people who have gone to church their whole life have never noticed what it's saying. They've never acknowledged it. This is telling us something very valuable about how churches function. But I'll tell you, this is, this is routinely not noticed, not followed in church life. Remember that, that, that what is being discussed here is something very serious, heaven and hell. But notice what it does not say in verse 12. It does not say, take care, pastors, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. What it says is, take care, brothers. And this word brothers means every believer in the church, including the pastors, of course. Uh, And here's the amazing thing. When it's dealing with something that is as serious as apostasy and the hardening of hearts and the believing of lies and unbelief, it says it is not the responsibility of the pastors. It's the responsibility of every believer to make sure that this isn't happening with one another. This massively important area is not entrusted to the pastors any more than they are part of the brothers. Yes, the pastors need to do it because they're also part of the brothers and sisters. But it is entrusted to every believer. Friend, that means you, if you're a believer. If you're a part of this church, you are responsible for the believers in this church. It's not my job and and Josh's job and Timon's job to make sure people don't stray spiritually. 
It's our job. We are, all of us, we are the true ministers. I'm not the minister. We are the ministers of the church. Well, let's, let's be really clear what this means because this can, we can miss this super valuable truth. It means husbands and wives are responsible for each other's spiritual condition. It means that we are responsible to exhort our children, whether they're young children or even adult children. It means that I'm responsible to speak to my brother or my sister who has strayed away from the faith. Why is this so necessary? Because, my friends, deceit is rarely recognized or forsaken on our own. When we look in the mirror, we only see half of ourselves. We don't see our back. We need others to show us our back. There's so much of the danger in our life is hidden from us. And and the very nature of deceit is not only do we believe deceit, but we become deceived ourselves about our deceit. The very nature of deceit is not to not to see it. Parents, when, when your children show signs of hardening, the, the message that they need to hear is not, I remember the day that you believed in Jesus. Yeah, I was there. I was there when you, when you knelt beside your bed and, and prayed to receive him. That's not what they need to hear. What they need to hear is, son, are you trusting in Christ right now? Who will cover your sins on the day of judgment? How do you plan on facing the eternal, infinite God, if not with Christ to cover you? If if verse 12 tells us who is responsible for one another, verse 13 tells us how, We are to do this. Do you see that in verse 13? But exhort one another every day. Uh, This word exhortation is is a very special word. It's a word that actually is is often applied to the Holy Spirit. It, it, It has at its heart an urgent appeal made to the heart. It's speaking directly to somebody, not in casual conversation, but, but with earnestness. It sometimes is with pro- projecting encouragement to them. Sometimes it's giving comfort to them. And sometimes it's giving warning. And, and the context of this passage, it, it clearly means warning. The exhortation that we give to somebody that is, dr- that is drifting and actually uh, uh, holding on to lies and hardening their hearts, what they need is not encouragement. What they need is, is not comfort. Oh no, what they need, my friends, is a word of warning, like someone leaning over a cliff as, as they're doing that, if a parent sees a child leaning over a deadly cliff, they don't give them a pat on the back and laugh with them. They pull them back. They give them a warning. Now, some of you are 
probably going to say, well, Tim, where's the gospel in all of this? And my friends, we, we sometimes forget that the gospel is good news because there is bad news that we need saving from. You know, the, the COVID vaccine that they're slowly getting out, it's good news because the threat of getting COVID is real. I can pretty much guarantee that if they came up a, with a vaccine to, pre, to prevent you from growing a second nose, uh, I, I doubt very much that you would take it. Because growing a second nose is not a, not a big problem in our society. It's not good news. It, you need to have real bad news before something really appears as good news to you. Uh, the warning, this is something that I think that we have forgotten in our gospel culture. And I love our gospel culture, my friends. But sometimes we forget that there's two sides to the gospel. There's bad news that results in very good news. You see, it requires both. If you never talk about sin, the Savior isn't that great. Um, we have forgotten that it was Jesus, Jesus, loving and tender Jesus, who said, flee from the wrath to come. We, we've forgotten that Peter said to the crowds at Pentecost, shortly before 3,000 of them believed and the church was birthed, he said this, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, that's our word, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. That's a warning. And verse 14, if you look at it, for we have come to share in Christ. We are, we are true believers. We have, we have come to truly believe in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. This verse tells us that perseverance in the present is the best proof of genuine faith in the past. It's not that somebody prayed some prayer when they were six years old with their mom and dad, as glorious as that is when it happens. It's they are holding right now to their original confidence. The original confidence, they're holding it firm to the end. And how do we persevere to the end? How do we persevere to the end? Remember, when you look at Hebrews 3, when was this hardening of heart happening for them? Look at verse 8. On the day of testing. We're going through a time of testing. This is going to be a time where believers, some believers, their hearts are going to be getting hard. How are we all going to persevere to the end? Well, verse 13 tells us we, we keep on exhorting each other every day. Day after day after day, we deliberately involve ourselves in each other's lives. We, we take responsibility for each other because we love each other. Listen to this simple and yet I think very profound thought. The difference between hardening and perseverance is the insertion of exhortation. So yes, God 
helps us to persevere to the end. He holds us fast to the end, okay? But here's another side of that, that we also hold each other fast by speaking words of exhortation and warning about the dangers of sin and playing with sin. You see, this is a redefinition of care we're talking about. Is care loving each other, encouraging one another, showing hospitality, um, helping each other financially, bringing meals to one another? Absolutely. That is care. But here's an element of care that is specifically commanded in Scripture. It's, It's a part of care that is often missing in our interactions. Warning is not popular in our present culture. Judgment has never been popular, by the way. It's never been popular, but it's super unpopular now. Uh, uh, I can't can't remember how, there's been so many movies and television shows that I've seen that have mocked the idea of judgment. Uh, It lightens it, it mocks it, it, it presents it as an intolerant. Uh, our culture resists the idea that there is a, a penalty to be paid before a holy God for the way we live. Well, that's what we expect among those who do not trust and believe the Bible. But unfortunately, warning has become very rare in the church as well. My friends, it's, it's the loving thing to do. And it's God's prescribed way of retrieving each other when our hearts start to harden. If we stay silent, we will prove the old adage. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Let's pray. I think, Father, we are often tempted to ask after a message like this in the words of Cain, am I my brother's keeper? Who says I'm supposed to do that? I've got enough responsibilities. Yes, we are. We are our brother's keeper. You hold us responsible for each other. Uh, In fact, we are to encourage one another. We are to comfort one another. We are to exhort one another. We are to confess our sins to one another. We are to teach one another. We are to sing psalms, hymns, and and, and spiritual songs to one another. We are to be interactively involved with one another. That is the church. The church is not somebody speaking on a Zoom screen where everyone's passively just watching. The church is interactive in the New Testament. Lord, I don't know how we're going to do this in this pandemic, but Lord, I pray that our our church would be a true church, a true New Testament church, where we're interactive. We're not just passive. 
We're not just observers. We're participants where we take responsibility for one another, where we, we discard the cultural view that the pastor is hired to take care of us and we just show up on Sundays and watch what they do at the front. Oh Lord, that, that is a cultural view of church that we discard and we do not embrace in this church. We want to embrace what the Bible says. The Bible says we are a family. We are brothers and sisters, that we care for one another and our eternal destiny to some extent hangs on whether we care enough to involve ourselves in each other's lives when we start to drift. And I pray, oh Father, please help us to become that kind of church. Lord, we, we, we long that people will not drift and ultimately depart from the living God. And Lord, for those among us who have lost family and others who have turned their back on Christ, Lord, we pray that even now that you will retrieve them, that you will bring them back, that you will hear our prayer, prayers, you will hear the weeping of our heart for them and you will bring them back. And oh God, perhaps one of the ways that you will bring them back is by us having enough courage to say something to those people because that is your prescribed way. So we trust in this, we believe in this, and we ask you to work. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.